Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm your host this week, Dave Gibney. I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Michelle Bourne and Connor McCabe. Um, this week, we've got a, a guest on again, um, Stefan Onulon uh, from Trademark Belfast, uh, a regular contributor to this podcast and also, good link to this actually, uh, also involved in the Left Block Project with their own podcast uh, by Trademark Belfast, a worker's guide to everything. Uh, we might actually talk to you in a few minutes, Stevie, uh, about the the new series that you are running on. What the fuck is the stock market? But we'll come to that afterwards. If you um, if you if you like what you hear from us or from any of the other affiliated podcasts, please do us a favor: subscribe, share, and also um, help us out. Contribute. Go to patreon.com forward slash left block. Um, without further ado, we go straight over to Michelle Byrne, who's going to talk to us about what's on the front page of the Irish Times this week. Yeah, so there's a good bit going on this week on the front pages. Um, a picture of a cow going for a swim, you know, top news stories. Um, but other than that, um, once we're joining the warmer weather this week, um, we're talking about the COVID restrictions being set to be phased out in the last four weeks. And obviously, this has been dominating the news the last week with the, a lot of the events set, sector um, really organised and hired around it and lobbying to get their voice at the table when it comes to um, a roadmap for kind of getting out of COVID. So a couple of things from the article that kind of um, that kind of stood out to me was they're talking about this, you know, phasing it out in less than four weeks. And this kind of like rudimentary uh, application of a date of September 20th um, as when things are going to lift. Now, anything based on this date is not actually anything to do with any pu- kind of public health measures. It's really like um, it's kind of just applying it as like, right, if we, if we set a date, that'll suit everyone. But it's actually not listening to like any sort of like public health guidelines um, and like there's so much that can happen between now and September 20th you know um, and there's so many things that need to happen other than attaching like how many percentage of the population is going to be vaccinated you know has ventilation increased in buildings has hospital capacity reached like the, the absolute max are people kind of continuing with like kind of different behavioral things of keeping masks on stuff like that all of these things will impact what will happen up until September 20th and I think set- setting a date is really dangerous quite honestly and actually the article goes into it and actually says the government said it's just pressing ahead with the easing of restrictions even if the full criteria for for reopening as set out by NEFID the public health team are not met so like some of the things that the the public health team are asking for is you know 90 percent of people over the age of 16 fully vaccinated that's fairly standard ask the other one is that the hospital um and intensive care units should be reduced or reducing to lower levels so that non-COVID health services are protected. Like, surely these are, like, fairly standard things that we should be aiming for before we start opening up. Like, it's just really concerning that, you know, we're, we're not tying this kind of move in the next four weeks to any sort of, like, health indicators and to a date indicator. It's kind of worrying. And at the same time, we're not talking about PUP and the supports that are ending in, September, in like, two weeks' time. And, like, obviously the event sector are going to be wanting to push forward because they're they're getting scared like a lot of the financial supports are going to be reduced and um, obviously they're frustrated because most of the events they wanted to run over the summer have not gone ahead but no com- no conversation here about the PUP but don't worry um because Eamon Ryan is coming to save the day as usual he's saying he's pushing forward for public transport to be reopened to full capacity so that all the workers can go back to work and um, if this is what greening of the government looks like um, I'm not having it like this is like like again not tied to any sort of public health guidance at all like just get everyone into work and if you know if they do it on the Lewis then they're doing well um, if anyone's ever been on the Lewis ever they'll know that it's absolutely rampacked and an absolute health nightmare when it comes to being in a public emergency 
for the pandemic. But yeah, and of course, then there's there's talking about electric picnic and everyone's talking about electric picnic and how, you know, there's a scramble to try and get 70,000 people at a three day camping event um, going ahead when at the moment the capacity that we have is 500 um, and lots of you know restrictions on what that 500 looks like. So, yeah. So basically what's happened is Tony Hoolan has said, um, you know, if everyone is vaccinated and, you know, maybe maybe you could do it. So now the government are panicking because they can't blame Neffet which they've continuously done is they use Neffet as, a, as as this thing, well, as a kind of a political uh, ban to bandy around. So instead they've gone to the Attorney General. So there's talks about that. And they're also blaming, of course, Leash County Council for them. How dare they make decisions that might actually be based in health. Um, so yeah, that's the main story on the front page. And there's a second one as well around, um, obviously, Afghanistan. So the government have preparing um, a programme to admit 500 extra Afghan re- refugees, which is great to hear that there's more um, more people being welcomed in. Um, there's talks about family reunif- reunification as part of that. So it'd be more for um, for people um, who are already living here and who want to bring the rest of their family um, to join them. It's really interesting as well, and I, I noticed the comments, some of the conversations um, online as well, was the reporting, obviously, of um, the attack that happened there a couple of days ago where it killed a number of soldiers and Afghans. Um, but also, a lot of the headlines just mentioned, oh, the 13 US soldiers are killed, and like failed to actually mention that there was over 100 Afghan people killed in that attack, um, as if somehow their lives aren't worth reporting on the same way, which is like disgraceful. Um, but yeah, so this this idea of and I, I saw some other commentary as well around like the the five hundred more Afghan refugee, refugees absolutely to be welcomed um, in, and I'm delighted to see that. But like we've gone from like saying we'll take hundred, we've gone to say we'll take two hundred, and now five hundred, and it just seems like this like really rudimentary again, like rounding of figures of like how many people will take in, and like it's just yeah, like and someone made a point um, online as well that like. The entire EU 27 and the UK won't, won't even take in 100,000 people altogether in total. But Turkey are taking in 300,000 people. So like where, what, like when you compare that to like 500, um, you know, why are we like putting these numbers and how many people need to come into Ireland is what we should be asking, like going from there. Um, yeah. But yeah, these are the kind of the stories on the front page, the two stories. So um, I'll hand that back over to you. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah, it just seems to me on that one um, that the government are holding up their finger to the to test the which way the wind is blowing and, and they determine their number on the basis of that. Um, I'll go over to Connor now. Connor, you've been looking at the Irish Independent, have you? Um, yeah, I have. Yeah, just for my sense. But um, yeah, I mean, um, it covers a few of the same kind of stories as as Michelle kind of covered there, like, you know, so I mean, um in terms of ones that are different, it's got an interview with Paul Mason, uh, which which might come back to later on. Um, and there's an interesting one, just a small one, on um, in the business section, and it's on a, a U, U Grove REIT, REIT, and this is a kind of commercial property REIT, um, and uh, it's doing well in terms of kind of rent by collections, but it's it's actually increased rent this year and uh, it rents to the public sector. And this may require some more digging, but it's raised rent at the Millennium Park in Nace and at Blackwater Blackwater House in Cork. And I've got a feeling that it raised rents on the public uh, buildings that that are being rented there. So, What's going on that the government, if this, if this is what it looks like, 
that the government has agreed to in- increase payment of rents to REITs when buildings weren't being used. So that that might need a bit more kind of digging there, you know. That mightn't be the case, but um, I find it hard to see how they could have talked the private sector into raising rents this year. Um, so it's probably their their like public sector kind of clients, which are which makes up um twenty two percent of their rental income is from the kind of public sector. But it's one of the maddest things about how 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 can public offices work. In Ireland, the state rents its property as if the state's going to collapse. You know, like is the stand is the what well, is the state just trying to find itself? You know, it's kind of you know this is you know it's in a gap year, so it's renting. You know, in kind of way, like you know, why is the state renting its own buildings for decades at a time? Is it going to move to Spain or something? Is it planning kind of forward head like like it should own these buildings? But it rents them, and this goes back to back to the nineteen sixties because you know it's been it's been kind of transferring public funds into private hands, and the conduit is through these buildings. Now I might be reading too much into that. Maybe I'm just getting way too cynical. But that's one that did kind of jump out at me that any any landlord, any any kind of commercial property landlord that's actually raising rents <laughs> in the last <laughs> six months. Um, and it's got like public sector uh, clients that's got to sell kind of alarm bells. Um, probably a niche story, but like a, a bit of a less story, like it is kind of something that probably needs kind of more digging. Um, overall, I mean, like there is a story that I don't know whether people want to want to cover it. Or not, but it's the uh, it's the election for the for kind of general secretary of of Unite uh, the union and like Sharon Grant kind of won that. So in terms of like trade union stories, that's probably the biggest story of the week, and, and it has a not uh, insubstantial um, like effect here in Arlington North and South, there we can unite being the second largest private sector union, if I'm correct, um, in terms of the like, private sector members, the second largest, maybe? it's I suppose it's a debatable one. Yeah. Uh, on an all-island basis, I suppose they probably are. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm not actually sure of the figures anymore, but they, uh, yeah. like in this 26 counties, they'd have about 14, 15,000 members, I think. All oh, right, um, so it wouldn't be so. It's not. It's it's not about twenty the in the north, I think. So it's about thirty-five, something like that. Right. Overall. Yeah. Now, like private sector kind of density in the south is now at like twelve percent. You know, um, like you know, it's it's it, it really it really is kind of hemorrhaging. Now, I I haven't really been been following the I wasn't following the the election itself. But what kind of jumped out at me was where kind of Sharon Graham is saying where she's coming from, which is, you know, like um, it's it's been put forward as a grassroots kind of win. Um, and she claims or it seems to be that she's not heavily influenced, but it's coming from the, the, the same kind of ballpark as Jane kind of McAlevey. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a case of her reading kind of Jane McAlevey and going, this is like future. She was doing this herself, you know, over yeah. like 30 years. So there's a, a you know, a, a, you, 
there's a link there. And, and I think like what kind of grabbed me was um, she ran on a very strong anti-political platform that really kind of comes forward. But my reading of it was that it's probably a bit more nuanced than when you have a kind of anti-political platform from trade unionists in the South here anyway. It's usually from the right wing of the trade union movement um, who just want to stick, who, who really want kind of trade unions just to be kind of HR kind of departments, you know, um, you know, it's a managerial kind of service, you know, kind of, kind of system. Um, I don't really want to get into anything that would, that goes kind of outside of that kind of HR like philosophy of the right wing of the, of the, um, of the Irish Country Union movement. And it's quite saying that phrase kind of right wing of the Irish Country Union movement because not, because not even the right wing thinks that it's part of the right wing of the Irish Country Union movement. So nobody's going to be insulted by that because everyone thinks, well, I, well that's not me. There has to be someone else who's a member of the right wing of the Irish Country Union movement. That's not me, you know. The right uh, wing of the movement is anyone who uses the term hard left or far left. That, that's who the- <laughs> that's the it does the hook on the benchmark. So the- it seems to me, so it seems to me that what she's talking about. Now I, I don't know, this is all superficial. I haven't been kind of following this. But it seems that what she might have been talking about was more the 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 vicious and toxic kind of nature of the internal debate of the Labour Party and saying, I'm I'm done with that. Just I'm not getting involved in that anymore or, or as much as we can. I, I think that might be a different um, a different take on this than what we'd get down south anyway. But also in a lot of those you know? circles, like the talk of the Labour Party, like that just doesn't resonate with any of the Irish members. Like obviously when you talk to Labour no. Party, they're talking about the UK Labour Party that the yeah. United still plays into. It doesn't resonate with the Irish uh, members. Like I, I've been at tables with lots of uh, other members from other regions um, and the talk of the Labour Party is in every single committee with that like across regions. Uh-huh. It's, it's bizarre and it just doesn't make any sense um, to any Irish members so it, it's I think it's been an interesting discussion like this whole bringing it back to the workplace focusing more on the organizing model over like a servicing model as far, as far as what some people are making the comparison to, from um, is what Sharon was trying to lead on and I think that really captured the hearts of a lot of grassroots members um, and yeah. that, that, that's obviously where the support was built and I think by you know obviously there was a lot of nominations got um, in all of the regions but I think you know, overlooking the fact that, you know, the nominations say one thing, but you still have to organise within the branches who've nominated against your candidate, I think was key to, you know, how the organising strategy went. It's just like, yeah, you might have got the nomination, but regardless, uh, there's a lot more people in that branch who might might not know what they were really nominating at the time or uh, may have not got all of the information in front of them, which is what I found. A lot of the nominations were made before a lot of the full, full campaigns were even launched. Um, but then, like the votes, obviously told different people where the votes were swinging. They went towards Sharon Graham in the end. Yeah, and 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 also, I mean, it's a different system here, like on the island, than in Britain anyway, because there's no one party of the Labour movement, and hasn't been. Well, there was, but it was Fianna Fáil, and that really kind of you know because we didn't have. We had that corporatist, quasi-fascist, um, like Peron-type kind of system going on here, you know. And Fianna Fáil was part of that, you know. So it's, you know, like it's 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 just Salazar, like Peron kind of view of what kind of trade unions should be, you know. And Fianna Fáil kind of tapped into that. And so, 
like that's where I find that there's a real problem when you get a lot of kind of British activists and like and uh, and like analysts who try to think that the Irish Labour Party is somehow the party of the Labour movement. When no, I mean all those all those all those kind of public sector unions voted for fall and did up up to the 1990s. You know. Just, uh, just to be clear for our listeners, because I, I, I'm conscious of the fact that we're all uh, trade unionists in this conversation here, and we we know a little bit about the Unite thing, especially myself and Michelle are members. I think, Steve, you might be a member as well. I'm not sure if Connor is... five years, man and boy. <laughs> well, I'm, just not, so no. we, so, I'm not a member. You're not, so, so just to be clear, like um, the way the system worked there in the election for the General Secretary of Unite was there's hundreds of... Um, branches all across the UK and Ireland and the branches have to each candidate needs to get a certain amount of branches to elect to nominate them so that they can get their name onto the ticket so there were four candidates initially um, running for this they all all four candidates made got the amount that they needed I think it's about 200 is that right Michelle Uh, around 200 branches so anyway they got they got their 200 Um, Howard Beckett was one of them he stepped down as part of a left alliance uh, with Steve Turner to try and get Turner in. Uh, so there were three candidates then on the on the ticket, uh, Sharon Graham, Jared Coyne and uh, Steve Turner. And then from that, obviously, we got the election results this week and Sharon Graham won in a very unexpected win because the whole broad left within Unite had been supporting Steve Turner. So it was a bit of a shock. Steve, I think you wanted to come in there. Oh, just to reinforce the point um, Michelle was making about when you're a member of Unite, uh, which is a British-based union, obviously we're organised in Ireland on a small island basis and through the Irish Congress, but we're, what, 30-odd thousand of a membership of 1.1 million. So we're kind of irrelevant to what happens in Unite over the water and whether what happens with this election has any impact on us at all is actually the interesting thing about all of this. Um, Perhaps nothing will happen and nothing will change here because we're such a tiny part of the union, you know? Um, Like when we trademark that is we used to deliver United's education when we first got given all of their education materials they were all British materials British legislation British case studies we just dumped them all in the bin and that had been the case for like decades so nothing had been done in that time to contextualize you know for example education materials for Irish members in terms of the actual election um you know we're all glad that coin didn't get in because he had a chance and that was um, a serious chance and that tells you something because he's still got quite a high vote the turnout was really low that's 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 also worrying what's it 12 percent or something out of a me- now you're not going to get a massive turnout but you need to be above 25 percent in the union election if you don't you're in trouble in terms of what that says about union democracy and union activism like are we talking about unite being strike ready like with 12 percent turnout for a, a general secretary vote i don't think so you know so there's worry there um, Turner campaign, poor, uninspiring. Didn't really see him. Was kind of invisible. Um, was the media like the plague? Yeah, <clears throat> I know that they spent very little money on on social media, whereas both Coin and Graham spent quite a lot of money on social media advertising and so on and so forth. It needed to because it was largely a social media campaign, was it? Because of COVID. Um, and we'll we'll have to just wait and see. I suppose what the impact in Britain is in terms of the future policy, and how that translates over to us as a tiny portion of a very, very large union. I don't know what we can do about that, but interesting times ahead anyway. At least the door's open for something different, I suppose. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see on some of it. Just on Connor's point there, just around right-wing trade unionists in Ireland, just in case anyone takes offence to this, right? Um, I don't think they should, because this in other countries, like I, I, I've said this on the show before, I worked in the Australian trade union movement. 
the trade unions in Australia and, and in other parts of the world actually affiliate to the right of the trade union movement or affiliate to the left. It's actually a, a, a cohesive branch, um, a, a little bit similar to what we saw with Unite. Jared Coyne would have been the right of the Unite election and the other two candidates would have been to the left. So just to be clear, we're, we're a very confusing, diverse sort of political system within the trade union uh, democracy in Ireland. But yeah, just just to, to make that point as well, I don't know whether anyone wants to come back in on the United stuff before we move on. Well, look, I'll go um, United. Thanks for one day. <laughs> well, look, I'll go on and just read a couple of the stories that are on the front page of the Irish Examiner, which I took a quick look at there, but I, I did most of my reading of the Irish Times as well. And I find, I love the, these connections to stories uh, that, that we find linked stories on the front page. So most COVID rules to end by October. And that's just reflective of what Michelle has already told us, that they're, they're planning on ignoring all of the evidence-based stuff uh, and all of the medical advice and, and expertise advice to scientists and all the rest of it, and just plowing ahead with whatever they want. And then right beside that, that article is by Aoife Moore and Paul Hosford, uh, two good journalists there. Uh, and then right beside it, it says, high level of COVID sees Ireland classified as dark red. <laughs> so um, it's talking about how there's a, a further 1,875 cases of the virus being reported by Neffet this week uh, and how we've now been marked as a, a as a dark red country when it comes to uh, to COVID. And yet we're talking about reopening everything again and, and, and dropping all of the rules. So um, there's just a couple of the stories there. Drug support group fears closure due to funding crisis. Um, this is a family drug project network uh, in the northeast. Um, is in, including in gang hit, gang hit Drogheda and County Loud is on the verge of closing after more than twenty years because it says it's experienced a funding crisis. Two small stories there on the bottom. Uh, one of which is, uh, <laughs> which I, I'm sure you guys won't won't appreciate too much, but players hail Ronaldo return to Man United. And then uh, another small story there uh, that we can get in. But what's really interesting actually about this, Michelle, and you like this, is that we have the exact same photograph of the cow swimming on the front page of the Examiner. So it's obviously the uh, the big story of the week. The only thing that gets replicated across the newspapers is a picture of a cow swimming. Um, very Irish indeed. Um, Stefan, you might want to talk to us about some of the papers you've been looking at, because you've been looking at a couple of the ones across the north. Yeah, a um, few naughty headlines. The, the the main one, the big one really, is the um, latest poll that came out this morning, which shows that um, well, Sinn Féin have held their percentage up at 25, 26, but the DUP has collapsed in the polls and the UUP has picked up and the, even the TUV, Traditional Unionist Voice, uh, has picked up a lot of uh, percentage points up to 14 and the, the, the UUP up to 16. Now, whether that won't translate into election results, of course, because the TUV don't have the they don't have the presence or the party organisation to translate that into seats, but it um, will certainly put the wind up, Jeffrey, and it put the wind up the DUP. Uh, whether that forces unionism to come together in electoral uh, pack is really the big question now, because they know that if they don't, Sinn Féin will be the largest party next May in the election, and Michelle O'Neill, if she's still there, will be the first minister. So it's interesting times. It looks as if the you now the demographic time bomb is uh, that unionism is always feared as. Uh, hitting home now so be interesting times the other big stories up here are of course well in the British section of the northern press if I can say that and is, is Kabul in Afghanistan the um, newsletter I didn't buy it but I did take a photograph of the front page when I was in the shop um, it, it could, it's a headline that could have been written after the Crimean War or the Boer War or the First World War 
Uh, it's brilliant. It sums up unionism. Soldiers' sacrifices have been betrayed. It's a beautiful unionist headline for a newspaper, you know. And then it goes on to say that families of soldiers um, have been betrayed by the British government and all their good work has been undone. Now, I'm not entirely sure how they define good work there. If, you know, killing lots of civilians and dropping bombs from 30,000 feet is good work, then that good work has been undone because it stopped. Um, the, but the British press, I've got the Guardian. Again, I didn't really want to, but I've got the Guardian for the show. The sacrifices I make for this fucking podcast. I've got <laughs> the Guardian. And it, and it is headlined something similar. Fear and fury of thousands abandoned to Taliban. People eligible to come to UK are left stranded by hugely mismanaged British rescue effort, as opposed to the hugely well-managed 20-year fucking conflict in Afghanistan that saw NATO forces kill over half of all civilians. Um, and, of course, all of this stuff is completely without context, completely without any understanding of the history of the place. Uh, and there was some bloke said on Twitter this morning, he said, there's a Venn diagram, there's two circles that will never meet, he says, in Britain. And it's the people that argued against the war and the people that wanted a second, rec- second referendum on Brexit in the Labour Party. And you have that, you know, that lib- those liberals that always push for humanitarian intervention, those liberals that always love a bit of fucking violence and a bit of bomb dropping, as long as they're not involved, of course long as it doesn't touch them, as long as they still get their two weeks in Tuscany every summer, they're quite happy for the British state and NATO to drop bombs on brown people in some hot part of the world. And I was reading this morning, I didn't quite realise that Irish troops were there as well supporting NATO. I knew that we opened up our airport, San Shannon, to let the Americans stop off and refuel before they went off to kill more brown people. But there was there have been Irish soldiers there since the start of the conflict, um, which was a surprise. I'm not sure what they did. Like Maybe they were making the tea or something for the actual soldiers, but uh, nonetheless, they've all, they've all been pulled out as well. So there's issues there, massive issues to talk about, I suppose, another day about Irish neutrality and where it's going, you know. But uh, yeah, Kabul and the horror of Afghanistan just continues, doesn't it? Mm. It does. I, I, I did listen to her in a radio interview with Simon Coveney, our Minister for Foreign Affairs, during the week, which I found fascinating, where he was asked a couple of difficult questions. You know, um, we were sending over troops to get the Irish citizens out. And uh, they asked the question about, you know, how was he getting them there? Because uh, we're one of, the, one of only two countries, I think, in the entire EU that doesn't have uh, flight capacity or something. I don't know what the term they use was. So we had to rely on France to fly our guys in. And then he was asked, how are we getting them out? And he sort of shrugged the shoulders and said, we'll have to figure that out at a later stage and rely on the um, the charity or goodwill of other states to get our guys out. So we don't even have the capacity to fly people in. Um, it's, purely, it's purely symbolic. It's symbolic nonsense. Absolutely. Sending Irish troops in to fucking evacuate. Not absolute fucking nonsense. The other thing I was going to say, just in terms of Northern headlines, I don't want to miss out the Irish news. All my family are, you know, purchasers of the Irish news. The normal headline, as I say, usually is like Catholic dog wins crafts or something like that. So, but today it's not. It's today's um, one in 40 in the North have COVID. So I think we have the highest now, they reckon, in the developed world. So if you want COVID, come to Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and the executive seem to have disappeared. There's no discussion here. No one's on TV. No one's talking about it. It's just kind of a free-for-all now. Yeah. There's no political leadership being offered. Um, and I was reading last night that our hospitals in the north are now at 104% capacity and the kids aren't back to school yet. So that's Tuesday. Kids mm-hmm. are back to school here. So it's going to fuck knows what it will be in another month's time. You know? So there's serious rumours here from people I know working in the NHS. They've been told to prepare for another circuit breaker or mini lockdown mm-hmm. some point in the end of September, start of October, because the, the, again, the numbers are going to increase dramatically and that will put huge pressures on the, on, the, on the hospitals. There was another report in the BBC as well about the Conservative government have accepted there's going to be 50,000 deaths a year. So that's their limit. So anything above that that you try and prevent it is, is you know, no lockdowns because it affects the economy. So we'll then accept 50,000 deaths a year from this point onwards as an acceptable level of death, which the Brits are quite usually, they're quite good at that. They said something similar about Northern Ireland in the past. 
Yeah, I, I mean, we, we've been hearing on Twitter and stuff, all these um, right wing uh, people arguing for, uh, you know, because in the north now, uh, wearing a mask isn't mandatory anymore in, in a lot of uh, incidents, like in shops and stuff like that, people can choose not to wear it. And people making the argument that we need that type of freedom down here, but they don't, what they fail to point out is that the north has 10 times the death rate as the south at the moment. Um, and so they're not making the connection. So, yeah, it is the highest death rate in the entire uh, developed world in the North, which is pretty fucking stark, to be perfectly honest, but uh, and frightening. And the numbers, the numbers in the North are quite similar to the South. And when you take into account the, you know, uh, population density, uh, it, it, it's it's massive. It's about four times the rate per capita than, than we have in the South. And we're quite high at 2000 almost every day. So five people in the North died yesterday as a result of COVID. So, um, yeah, I know it's pretty, pretty stark stuff. Um, just on the front page of the Irish Times as well, and the small bits in the bottom, I wanted to throw this open because I know, I know we have people here on the call who know a lot more than I do about housing, but Dara O'Brien has promised social housing on a scale never seen before. Page six. So this mm. is Fianna Fáil making massive promises. And I believe the housing first, housing, what's it called? The, oh, I could slip my mind now. What's the plan he's relaunching on Wednesday? Housing for all. Housing. housing for all. Some might be familiar with it as the Homes for All march a couple of years ago. You know, just absolutely co-opting left-wing language at this point. Um, and I, I would totally take that on the chain about what he's saying about social housing and everything. I, I'd say that's a bit of a, a soundbite. Um, and a scale never seen before. So is he planning on like outdoing what, what the building of public homes looked like years ago? I seriously doubt that. Uh, so someone will want to fact check that now once it's uh, once it's re- announced. But yeah, so then he goes on like in the in the deeper article, he starts talking about like, oh yeah, social and affordable as well as cost rental. But like, we all know that affordable homes really means nothing when uh, affordable homes are being bandied about as 450,000. 100,000 at one stage and we're also seeing you know these affordable homes then coming back onto the market to be sold privately for much higher prices so like what exactly does <laughs> affordable homes mean and what where does that leave but like the the article then goes into obviously like uh, he does he does actually emphasize again so obviously he leads at the social housing piece um but he, he then emphasizes more about the affordable home home housing uh later on but like what that means is it's private it's private housing as far as I can see um privately owned yeah he says he's going to give the local authority the to the ability to buy more land um it's exactly what he said um but other than that um it's kind of talking about like how bad the the homelessness uh figures are getting again so there's 8,100 people homeless again including 2,100 children um and it's going up 1.5 percent on the number recorded in June so this is only getting worse and I think like look we know this happens every time there's a plan being released there is kind of bits that are dropped every couple of weeks up to lead into it to see how people are reacting to different elements of it. Um, and this, I think, to be honest, I think this is probably a bit of a whitewash on the, that he's going to deliver all of these social housing. I don't know how he plans on doing that. Um, but look, we'll see. But I, at the moment, I remain seriously, seriously sceptical that he's led with that um, when he's talking about massive emphasis of affordable housing and um, then throughout the piece otherwise. So I would say that will be more reliant on a, a private model than a public model somehow. Just there, Connor, because you might know a little bit more about this just in terms of the numbers. Like, what were we talking about in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? From memory, and I haven't looked this up, obviously, but uh, we were building about 30,000 public housing units a year uh, during some of that period. Like, is am I right in saying around that, around 30,000 per year? Yeah, I mean, there was, there was, there was like the two kind of decades that were the most kind of intense were the 1930s and the 1970s. Um, 
in the 1970s, there was more so there was more social housing built in the 1970s than any other time, but they were selling off more because of the uh, right to purchase act of the 19, of like 1967. But like on the unlike social housing, I completely believe Dara O'Brien. Um, I believe every word he's saying, and the reason being is that it's because of a man called Dr. Bill Nolan. And for anyone out there, it's worth googling Dr. Bill Nolan of Hibernia Beat. Doctor, and I do say doctor, because uh, Bill, Bill Nolan has been part of the housing, the housing policy architecture of Ireland for, for nearly 30 years now. And uh, he, was, he, he was one of the founders of Hibernia Reit. That was one of the first REITs that was, that was actually brought in back in 2013. And he did his PhD on how to monetize social housing. And it's and it's with the it's with that's what his his doctorate is in. It's up online. It's fairly kind of available. It's University of of of, of and it is fascinating reading because he lists out the entire plan. It's a bit like the, the people that remember the Fast Show. Yeah, um, I'm going to nick it, guy. Um, that's basically what Bill Nolan is. He's with his PhD, he said, don't leave that there. I'll just nick it. And everyone just laughs and goes, but it's social housing. He goes, no, nah, I'll nick it. That's what I'll do. I'm a geezer. And uh, he's written this 300-page kind of you know, PhD that lays out in terms of what policy has to be changed, what laws have you brought in, how do you fund it, everything. And what, and what Dara O'Brien has announced, or, or, or O'Brien or O'Brien? O'Brien. Sorry, I, I just thought that in the South, you, 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 you had to be called O'Brien to be housing kind of spokesperson. Sorry, sorry, um, uh, it's O'Brien. But like, um, but here, and it's, and it's all there. So the, the plan here is that you build social housing with public money and then you hand it over, hand it over to these companies for 25 years. And that's the and like it's all there. It's all in his PhD. It's it's absolutely everywhere. He first put forward the concept of of housing REITs back in 1997, and he was he was shot down. He was just um, um nobody was having it. And in 2002, he he tried again, and and Charlie McCreevy shut it down. The reason being was that. Bill Nolan, he was talking about bringing in foreign capital to invest in in housing, but all the capital in in housing, well, it, 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 it was being provided by Bank of Ireland, AIB, Anglo Irish Bank, Irish Nationwide. What the big the big kind of game changer is two thousand and eight. That blows up. That was Bill Nolan's opportunity. Mm. And he lobbied, he lobbied NAMA. NAMA in 2009, it's only set up in 2009. And from its very first start, it's saying we want to have REITs kind of set up here. So laws were passed in 2013 for that. And one of the very first REITs kind of set up, um, Hibernia REIT, and who's who's at the uh, top of it? Bill Nolan himself. Wasn't doctor then. He was just Mr. Bill Nolan, but he's now since become Dr. Bill Nolan. That's, that's kind of 50% of your panelists. 
<laughs> but like, um, but, uh, but, um, sorry, Steve. Only, only 25% of our panel is a Dr. Nolan themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It has to be we're good. Not, we're not related. It has to be good for something. I have to, to, to kind of get it in somehow, you know? So it's all there. So, so like I'm waiting for Monday when, when like Philip Ryan, um, um, when like Philip Ryan announces the, the government's housing for all plan, which would then be kind of um, officially kind of published probably Tuesday or, or, or like Wednesday. But I'd be very, very surprised if there's any strong deviance. There'll be some deviance, but if there's any strong deviance from the vision that Bill Nolan has put forward in his PhD that is freely available online, Google oh. his name. I'm gonna. I've already it's, written his name. It's down. all there. It's all there. And he has spent like hats off to him. He's had this vision for nearly for 25 years now, and he has stuck to it. Yeah. And now, all it took, and all it took for his dream to come true, was a global financial meltdown. That's all it took. All it took. Only small. You know what I mean? Like you know, these are the small things. Michelle. Sorry, Michelle. Speaking of um, dreams coming true, you know, uh, our dreams can come true in a story in Irish Times where it's when your home is just the ticket and it's talking about how people are raffling off their homes. Um, and like for us, the dream as young people to own our own home is probably through a raffle now, apparently. Um, but it talks about how like, yeah, basically people are a, a alternative to sales are raffling off their homes. And like I first came across this because in Waterford, there was a house around the corner that was being raffled off with the car shebang. And it was the, it was kind of this new novelty. No one had ever heard of it. It was middle of lockdown. Everyone was like, ah, sure, an extra 20 quid will throw in. Sure, might win a house kind of thing. And all my friends who are like under 30 trying to be like, oh, God, we could actually potentially maybe win a, like, win a house down the road. Like, how amazing is this? Our only chance to ever be able to own a home. Um, but yeah, so essentially, and then I, I travelled down to Kerry. And I noticed the phenomenon down there as well, because they'd signs up along the road that, you know, uh, your chance to win a house in Kerry, enter the raffle. Now, interestingly enough, I found out from this story um, that that particular house in Kerry was being raffled off by a national school to raise funds. So obviously some of these raffles are being done for uh, profit. Some are being done for charity. Um, there was one house that was sold, I think, in Mayo. That was uh, the house is valued at 100,000. And the raffle generated one million. So there, and then that per, the person who won it is said she's going to use it as a holiday home. So like, in like that's anyway whatever. Um, but the one in Kerry has been raffled by a national school to generate funds for a general purpose room in the school, right? So obviously there's a number of different different issues with this. Um, off the back of the fact that you know how. How, like that they don't have the money for the infrastructure important infrastructure to build in a national school themselves um like that they have to actually go to fundraising but interesting enough um this school got this house by going and getting a loan to buy this house that is worth three hundred and fifty thousand. the building of the room that they're planning on doing is one hundred and twenty five hundred or one hundred and twenty five thousand. So they're buying a house worth nearly three times the amount of the room that they hope to build because they can capitalize on the fact that loads of people will jump into a raffle um, for a house because we're in a housing crisis. Everyone wants to has that dream of like, maybe I can own my own home. But like bizarre that they could get a loan for to buy a house for 350000 and not a loan or even government funding. Not that they should have to take out loans. 
for the 125,000 to build a room that is like proper it's a general purpose room of a school like so yeah it's just this really bizarre piece where the only hope of them being able to build infrastructure for a school is capitalizing on the crisis of housing by selling the dream of a home like bizarre totally grim to be honest um just on sticking to the housing thing and this might bring in our our own dr nolan um or dr o'nulon as he likes to be called uh fianna fall senator objects to gale talked housing proposal um, this is a, a really fascinating story for me because she's a uh, Fianna Fáil senator is Lorraine Clifford Lee. Uh, we've covered her on this on this show before. She runs in my constituency in North Dublin, but she's objecting to the building of a housing estate in uh, Waterford, uh, which is an Irish language um, house uh, region in Waterford. Um, it's a gale topped area. And her objection is that she doesn't know whether they're going to be English speakers or fluent Irish speakers moving into the home. And there should be some protections around that. And she does explain that her family, she's part of the diaspora. Her grandparents were from down there. Grandparents or great grandparents. I'm not sure. Uh, They left the area in the 1950s to move to Dublin. So she's uh, a little bit removed, but she has put in an objection to it uh, on the basis that they just don't know what language people are going to be when they move in. So it's on the same stage. Again, it's one of those things on the same exact same page where O'Brien vows homes on scale not seen before Fianna Fáil Senator objects to Gale Talk housing proposal um, I don't know whether you have any any position on that Mr uh, Fluent Irish Speaker there Stevie Well I mean I, I admit I can be a little bit Taliban when it comes to the Irish language but um, I, th- I mean this this is just populist nationalist nonsense isn't it from her like I mean if they wanted to preserve and save and grow the Irish language they'd have done it decades ago and they had the chance they've had 100 years of the state and they've you know entirely failed to do so I think I read a stat once that when De Valera became Taoiseach, there were about 30,000 speakers of Irish in Clare. And when he died, there were none. So that's, that's Fianna Fáil, And that's Fianna Fáil in the Irish language. Um, so now just, I mean, these, they, they've had, as I said, they've had decades to, to reverse the rot. I mean, the Donegal Gale Tuck is on its last legs. Like, you know? We know that parents have stopped speaking Irish to their kids. And once that starts, that's the end of the transmission of the language. So in a really pile of state. And uh, that, that, that issue there of one housing act isn't going to do fuck all for it. Unfortunately, and um, there's one other. Oh, sorry, Michelle, you want in on that? Um, yeah, sorry. Inter- obviously, you have to comment about Waterford. Um, <laughs> there's a uh, the Sinn Fein councillor Conor McGuinness actually mentions he's also an Irish speaker, as far as my memory serves me. He mentions that actually, you know, that the size of the housing thing is actually in excess of needs of the Irish speaking population in the area, but also that the accommodation that would be provided would actually be out of the price range cohort for people living there. So like, that's actually a key point there. So you're pricing pe- local people out of the housing there. And yeah, obviously you can bring in the, lang- the language side of it as well, but the local people actually won't be able to afford it. So um, who is this for? Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting one for a whole range of reasons, obviously. Um, I, I'm not picking a side on it, by the way. Uh, I just found it interesting that it's been fall senator up in Dublin that's doing the objecting and not somebody, well, maybe locals are, uh, but this is a significant piece. It's even got a photograph of herself in it. So, I mean, um, you'd, you'd ask yourself if this is about PO rather than anything else. But um, there's one other housing story, and it's a very sad one there on the on, on this uh, on page six of the Irish Times. And that's that David Hall has stepped down as chairman of the board of inner city helping homeless charity, citing what he said were recent threats to his personal safety. So there's a it's a very small piece. I believe there's a bigger piece online because I saw a link earlier on on, on Twitter being shared. Uh, about the threats that he'd been receiving the articles by Jack Carroll but it's obviously in relation to the death of Anthony Flynn there last week well two weeks ago nearly now um, and the you know the whole story of what's been going on there which is 
Uh, it's just quite awful, the whole thing. Uh, you know, the story says here that Anthony died in tragic circumstances last week. And it was really, I went to the funeral myself um, and uh, it was really heartbreaking, really difficult um, space to be in. Uh, but you see the whole community down there, you know, really torn to, to bits around it. So obviously I just want to extend our um, sympathies to the family and friends of, of Anthony and to everybody in Inner City Helping Homeless because they're going through such a t- traumatic time at this uh, moment. I don't know if we want to, if... Connor, you wanted to come in on something? Yeah, just to go back to something that Michelle said there about that raffle. Um, my uncle got his house through a, you know, a, 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 a raffle and um, it was social housing. And like he's my uncle, he, yeah, he's in his 90s. He's the last one alive of my mother's family. And um, what they did was that uh, there was a raffle held by Dublin City Council every year. It was an annual thing. And um, newlyweds, would, it, they'd, they'd be put into a drum, same as the old kind of um, Irish kind of sweepstakes drum, and be rolled around, and then names would be pulled out, and then you got a social housing through that. And, and he was one of the names, well, his, him and his wife, he was 49 or 51. Um, that's the year, not the number of the ticket, and um, and uh, and that's how he got his his house in Ballygall in like Finglestown. But the point that it, it, it that I want to make was that the housing was not social housing hadn't been ghettoized then. It was public housing. The reason why it's a raffle was that there was none of this kind of point system. You know what I mean? Like there was a shortage. But it wasn't based on public housing is only for, you know, kind of low paid, you know, kind of workers or those who are who are who are kind of unemployed. That that idea, that whole kind of ghettoization idea of public housing. But for me, that is what has really kind of killed it off, because it, it really should be a case of everyone should have access to kind of public housing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like. Like once it's turned into something that is turned into a almost a kind of charity thing, that's what would kill public housing. And that's what they've done with it. So I think that when we talk about kind of going forward, there's a need for social housing and for public housing. And maybe even kind of maybe even kind of going back to that public home, you know, that kind of public housing kind of ownership kind of model. But but everywhere it is when you sell the house, you have to sell it back to the corporation you can't sell it to the private sector you know um but it does show that you know that that there were that there were other that there was a much wider view of what housing and its role kind of in society even even 40 years ago than there is now that that whole kind of ghettoization it's it, it's really seen with the surrender kind of regrant scheme of the early 1980s you know and that, and, and that was probably the the, the the whole kind of start of it. And that needs to kind of really change. Sorry, I didn't realise I was on mute. Speechless. I had your speechless there, I had. There you go. Stunned you. <laughs> um, I, I have a, a couple of small short stories to uh, to go through, which are on page uh, 12. Oh, no, hold on. Page 16 of the Irish Times. 
uh, and people might want to jump in, but I'm going to go through a couple of them very quickly. It's the business section. So um, so bear with me for a second here. Staff at, at RTE on 100,000 plus salary fall to 117. And this is the story about um, all of the staff in RTE. And they do this banded, the amount of people in each band of income. And they seem to do it every two years now. They used to do it every every year. But anyway, there's 117 people on 100,000 euros per year plus, uh, which is down from, I think it was two, 123, so or 121 or something like that. It's down four or five. But uh, I just found it really interesting that the story is written by Gordon Deegan, who doesn't mention that it's a, it's a fall. He actually... In, in and this for the listeners and for everybody else, um, the person who writes the headline is not the same person who wrote the article. So it's interesting that the article is is written in a way of there. You know, it's it's very factual. It's just straightforward. Well, whoever wrote the headline decided to to sort of temper it a little bit and say, "Oh, look, that's a decline, so that's all good." Um, and it goes through a, a whole range of different categories of staff. So, the 176 RT staff members earn between eighty thousand and a hundred thousand. Uh, and the average pay in RTE is €60,000 per year. Um, but crucially, and this is really important, uh, the figures published by the National Broadcaster um, don't, don't show what the earnings of the likes of, don't include the likes of Ryan Tuberty, Joe Duffy, Ray Darcy, and all the high earners, because they're bogus self-employed, as we would call them, but they're, they're, they're independent contractors, as it says here in the, um, in the article in the newspaper. So that's one of the stories there. Another one is that Lewis and Road toll revenues plummet after traffic decline during pandemic. And I wanted to talk about this one specifically, not because of any surprise in that uh, at all, but, you know, we've privatised our transport system effectively. All the tolls, uh, toll bridges. And Stevie, I know you speak about this in some of the training courses. Um, but the compensation these guys get for uh, reduced tolls. So, you know, they're onto a winner either way. They make the profits in the good times and in the bad times. The state came in and it says here that the uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland had to plug the hole there by 30.9 million. So that, you know, it's a, it's a great little business investment when you just know you can't fail whatsoever. And it's the same, that by the way, that, that 30.9 million includes the Lewis too. So we know Lewis is privately owned and, and of course their revenues were hit as a result of, uh, of the pandemic. So yeah, there was a the state stepping in to, to plug that hole. Um, I'm, I don't I'm know. waiting for someone to blame uh, the Free Lewis campaign on that now. You'll see you see, you see that reference in the doll now sometime. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> Is it not free? Um, look, where, uh, Stevie, you wanted to come in on something there? No, it's funny you were talking about transport and privatisation because that's the story I was going to uh, talk about. There's an article in the Belfast Telegraph today about a queue of a thousand people long at uh, Aldergrove Airport, which is to you lot, that's um, the international airport, which is about 30 miles outside Belfast. And um, it's been like that for about two years. I mean, I don't, we travel quite a lot, unfortunately, in trade. We go over to, to Britain quite a lot because we're very good and we're very popular. So we have to go over there all the time to do work. And we um, we always go to Dublin because you can't go to Aldergrove. I think I've missed two flights there over the last two years because it's such a shit show in terms of trying to get through airport control. And I was looking into why that was. And of course, it's been privatised and it's been bought out by a group called Swissport. And of course, then I looked up who Swissport was. And um, they've recently gone through a restructuring where they borrowed money off someone to an equity versus debt deal. And they were bought out by a group of high net worth individuals. Anyway, you know the story. that It's owned now by a small group of, um, of an equity firm who are doing everything in their power to squeeze every last fucking penny they can out of that ownership of that small service provided at Northern Ireland's largest, only you know, largest airport. Um, and it goes back to the heart of the peace process here. And that's, and Connie, you know this well, because you did a lot of work with this on us. 
there was right back in 98, there was a, the OECD sent there. They didn't call it that. They changed the name of it. It was called the AGP and it was the advisory group on privatization. They just spent 10 years selling off Eastern Europe. And then they were kind of, <laughs> the next stop was, was Northern Ireland after the peace process. And that, that took root at the heart of the institutions here that, you know, what we really need to do with this place is just to privatize everything. If it moves, fucking privatize it. And a thousand person queue yesterday, Order Grove Airport is the, is the result of that, you know. And of course, actually, everyone knows that should be insourced and brought back in house again. Mm. Um, and, the, and the fact that thousands of people now, I mean, no one I know goes to Aldergrove. Everyone goes to Dublin Airport because you just can't trust you can get on your plane from Aldergrove. It just shows the dysfunctionality at the heart of this place, you know. I thought that was an interesting story anyway. I'll back to you, Dave. Yeah, no, uh, it is. Uh, Connor, you wanted in on a story there, did you? Yeah, just like two, you know, two, uh, two kind of small kind of silly ones. Uh, first one being silly is like Paul Mason. Um, he's a new book out. And um, Paul Mason just makes me laugh so much forever. You know, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a, I don't know, whatever. He's a bookmarks version of like David McWilliams, you know. And, um, and he just, he has a line in this interview where he's talking about fascism. Now, Paul Mason had a like anyway, but like, and he talks about how and this look and this is a quote. He he's talking about National Rally, which is the fascist kind of uh, a party that's been set up by like Marie Le Pen, and he jumps in on the journalist who who said this and goes, "Well, actually, her party is not technically a fascist party." It has a a, a, a a kind of fascist origin, but it's not a a, a, a like fascist party. And they're going like, what fucking planet are you on? That the whole party is not a fascist party. This isn't some kind of debate room with you and your friends in kind of our well, no longer friends in kind of our mirror in of our kind of media house. Later on in the same interview, he then says that the best way to tackle like Le Pen is to advocate and bring in anti-fascist laws for the uh, far right. These anti-fascist laws are laws for kind of, for kind of fascists or for those who are technically not fascists. You know, I just it's just it's a bugbear of mine how 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 easy bullshit sells really. You know, like David McWilliams is a classic example of it it is like you get so many lefties who go oh well you know he has some things right it's going well that's not that's that's such a that's a very low bar that's you said you it once to me connor you said that he's the kind of economist that says at 12 o'clock he looks at his watch in three hours i predict it will be three o'clock and at three o'clock he declares yes it is as i predicted i have no one i have no one you know he's a fucking chancer and, and then the other <laughs> is um and like Paul Mason is the same, you know, he once said that, you know, if you if you don't like if you don't see how how kind of Keir Starmer, you know, is a Marxist from a from a social democratic perspective, then you don't understand Marxism. Hey, go, go at fuck, you know, just leave the room. You know, and he gets just like, like he's just anyway, anyway, anyway. We, but like, we do a separate podcast one day on David McWilliams and his brilliant kind of writing because oh last, my week, God. last week the Republic was going to be Switzerland, the week before it was Saudi Arabia. I'm just wondering, is there any other countries? That can yeah, Balkans as, as well. Like, you know, like the Croatia was one of them as well. Like, you know, yeah. I think uh, he's getting a in a map and says, oh, we, the Republic can be like, oh, where's that? Oh, Tajikistan. Yeah. Yes, the Republic can be the new Tajikistan. Yeah. He uses the, 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 the same kind of manatees as like family guy, 
But like, um, there's another one where um, it says to infinity and beyond the eternal appeal of Star Trek. Now, <laughs> um, I agree with him. I agree with him. I mean, like, I have to say, Rever, I loved that episode of of Star Trek where uh, where Andy moves house, <laughs> right? And 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 Spock and Kirk have to save Baby Yoda. It's 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 one of my favorite. Star it's Trek. It's, it's, a, it's a classic kind of Star Trek. To infinity and beyond. The eternal appeal of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, how did you get a job, Buzz Lightyear did a cameo on Star Trek, did he? What? Sorry? Buzz Lightyear did a cameo on Star this Trek. This is it. This is, see, uh, season three, the, uh, the, the, the kind of crap one. Anyway, I just think... Yeah, how you know, did you get a job writing in Irish newspapers? It must be fucking easy, is it? You just like turn uh, up at the front door. Well, I mean... That gets into the other story in the Irish Times about how much cocaine is used in Dublin, you know. But um, anyway, they were the two stories that really kind of just uh, just kind of bugbear, just kind of yeah. jumps at me, whatever. But like Paul Mason, like I have to say, like it's just something, and it's, it's because he's a he's a trope. He's you know he's a he's a perfect example of those incredibly confident and utterly stupid uh, blokes in like left-wing circles. They just seem to prosper like mushrooms on shit. They're just absolutely everywhere. And he's just, he just encapsulates, encapsulates, encapsulates <laughs> all of that, you know? And it just drives me nuts because as someone who actually does the research and actually will spend hours chasing down footnotes, I do the research. This kills me seeing these people write entire books just full of waffle, you know, and he's and he's definitely kind of one of them. Anyway, vent yeah. or rant over. Right. Michelle. I have to watch, I have to watch kind of Baby Yoda on, on like season three of fucking Star Trek now. <laughs> just, to, just to continue on that story that Connor briefly mentioned there on the front page of the weekend review of the Irish Times, uh, the cocaine story, um, cocaine nation, it's everywhere. <laughs> like I... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was drinking me tea when you said that. Oh my god, that's so funny. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, the piece is um interesting. Um, yeah, so essentially it says that you know that the, the status symbol of cocaine being of all you know rich people are the only people who um who take it is is now uh, a memory, like that's not that's not the case anymore. Um that basically kind of it sets it up as in like rich people don't use it anymore, it's everyone on the PUP. The PUP is now funding uh, cocaine and that is the whole, so it kind of almost gives excuses at the start where it's like, no, it's not like a symbol of wealth and excess and it's not like being delivered on silver platters. It's not just rich people who, who are using cocaine anymore. Instead, we're going to use it now to change its whole identity and just demonize people on the PUP. Um, and, you know, just set, set another reason for why we should uh, cut this in two weeks time. Um, but yeah, no, essentially it's saying that friends on higher earnings compared to their pre-COVID part-time jobs, which is interesting. Um, so that they have fewer expenses and uh, that the, the drug, like one person says the drug isn't everywhere, but it almost the, obviously the interviewer, Jack Ryan, asked the question on, do you believe the drug is everywhere? And one of the person said, no, I don't think it is, but yet it's still the headline of the article. Um, and then it goes on to um, a couple of other things where one guy is only paying 40 euro for um, a gram of 
uh, cocaine when it used to be 80 or 100. Um, so I don't know what exactly he's buying, but I don't think it's cocaine if it's 40 euro. Um, but at the same time, then they get comments from the guards. Um, and guard and Mark Houlihan is talking about how, whether it's moral or not to start setting up fake Snapchat and Instagram accounts to try and catch buyers over, um, over social media, because that's apparently where people are mostly um, selling drugs now and not on the street. They said they used to be able to adopt the appearance of a drug addict and go and up and buy from them. So really like dehumanizing language here. And like, obviously only people who look like people who are addicted to drugs buy drugs on the street. And what exactly do people, what exactly do people like uh, look like who buy drugs on the street? So lots of other questions that I feel like you could have digged into a little bit there, but yet that he finishes off on a really strong line. Every generation has its challenge. This generation's challenge is cocaine. Not housing. <laughs> not housing, lads, or not that we're worse off than our, our parents, or not, you know, the mental health issues. Not, not. Do you know what? It's cocaine, lads. Well, I mean, um, a, a, a friend of mine, he works in banking, and, like, he says that it's all over the place. It, like, you know, he says that he's never seen it so prolific in the bank in the bank in the banking kind of community and uh a bonus is, is they're just spent on drugs so yeah they've so what you're saying is that we should get rid of all bankers bonuses yeah well you know get rid of bankers as a as a, as a body of people you know move them to a lot like, a situation where you can concentrate them in like a i don't know like a thing with fences around it like a gulag or something that would be where you should put all bankers on as we're talking drugs um just wanted there was a Interesting article last week. I can't remember where I read it, but it was during the, Tal- the first Taliban regime of uh, 20 years ago. Opium production crashed by 99% in Taliban-controlled areas. But successfully, and because of the introduction of Western democracy and capitalism, that's thankfully, that's turned been turned around by uh, American and NATO presence. And that's gone up to Afghanistan now produces 95% of the world's heroin. So uh, that's a good thing, isn't it, really? Mm. So now that Taliban's back in, they're worried about that 4 billion export market crashing now, I see. So can't trust the Taliban to be good capitalists either. Yeah. Another reason to get rid of them, really. Yeah. Well, just on uh, to finish off that story, and there is a link to, on the PUP side of it, and it's clearly a beat up on people. On And, and uh, I believe sometimes this happens within the, the media, knowingly or not knowingly, but they're, you know, from the front page of the Times today saying about COVID re- regulations are going to, be decreased uh, or, or, or get we're going to get rid of them in a few weeks you can be sure as hell that they're going to be deconstructing the pup payment but what i find interesting about that article is jack ryan uh, wrote the article right and look i hang around in different circles it's not everywhere in my circles not not nowhere near it and sometimes you just have to look at the bubbles that they're in so the very last sentence i know i know you mentioned the last sentence but underneath the last sentence it says jack ryan is a final year student at trinity college and freelance writer so perhaps we need to look at that bubble uh, to see if it is everywhere as the article quotes but anyway just on the linkage of that stuff right um, talent shortage to hinder employers as job posting surge. Uh, again, page 16 of the business today, which seems to be the best page for news stories. But um, th- there's been a survey done by Indeed. Um, you know, in, I think it's Indeed.ie, the job that they post jobs or something. Um, and it's talking about how many people are actively looking for jobs or urgently looking for jobs versus people who are not urgently looking for jobs in the unemployed sector, right? And it's talking of um, 25% of people are actively looking for jobs, 7% are urgently looking. But for most, most is 18%, by the way, and I've never come across 18% being as most. Um, uh, the search is not urgent, right? And it talks about why it's not urgent. And they reference 
at the start of this explanation that the PUP is a big part of it. But then when you look into it, the actual results of the survey are, for those not urgently seeking, it says care responsibilities, such as parenting, at 18%, uh, you know, 18% of people are not urgently seeking jobs because they have no childcare facilities. But that doesn't make the headline. It's the PUP stuff that we're talking about here. And then it says the second highest one, uh, fears about contracting COVID in the workplace is at 17.6%. So again, you're going, well, where are you getting the PUP shit from, dickhead? It's, it's about childcare and fears of contracting COVID. That's the real story in the survey. But we're leading up to that whole, we're going to deconstruct the 350 euros per week. So stop taking your cocaine, lads, now. Save your money because you're coming into hard times. So I just found that bit, that article, when you delve into it, is a little bit annoying. So I don't know, Michelle, have you got any other stories there you wanted to come in with? Yeah, I had another story um, on pedestrianisation. So obviously we touched on Free Lewis, but also another Twitter campaign that worked well this this week was off the back of a tweet from Dublin City Council. Um, I don't know if the person writing the tweet like was really angry at the pedestrianisation ending as well and just deliberately tried to cause trouble or somehow they were so oblivious to the public uh, reaction to the, like. Uh, but essentially, they, they put out a tweet saying, you know, over the last 11 weeks, more than 300,000 people have experienced traffic free streets of Capel uh, Street and Parliament Street. And this weekend is the final scheduled weekend. So be sure to check it out. Really chirpy, great news story. Uh, we're ending pedestrianisation that everyone has been enjoying, um, but like trying to pass it off as good news. So obviously everyone was like, are you actually having a laugh? Um, like you can't just say like, wait, this is successful. So we're ending it. Um, as much they as much things at Dublin City Council, hey, successful public toilets, we're ending it. Um, you know, you, you know, the list goes on, the list goes on. But yeah, so essentially it forced Dublin City Council to then announce the next day that, oh no, actually, um, we'll extend for another month, but we always plan to do public consultation. We just forgot to mention that. Um, and you know we'll keep the we'll keep it going until um, the, the the we'll keep the trial going until we have the public consultation. But really interesting. Um, there has been it talks about the other city councils as well. Dunleary Rack Down. They have re-pedestrianised um, routes that had been traffic free for a decade up to two thousand and eight. So you're seeing like that crawl back of public spaces, which is great. Um, they had like loads of increased football and all that jazz. But Fingal County Council has only pedestrianised one street, New Street in Malahide, right? But there was a massive campaign again. Now, I don't know if, it, if the campaign has then created a chill effect as to why they couldn't consider any other streets, but this one campaign, this one particular street anyway, has sparked a massive opposition campaign to the pedestrianisation of it um, by one resident who is now taking them to the High Court um, in order to get this overturned um, because she said there was increased traffic and antisocial behaviour in the village off the back of it. So, yeah, interesting that the, that these things are going to the courts now. Um, but there is talks about like other, um, you know, pedestrianisation, like around South William Street, that's been in the news as well. Um, but if, when the public consultations come back for them, there's huge support for these measures. So obviously we're talking about the court actions or we're talking about Mannix Flynn taking away, you know, bicycle lanes or whatever he's up to. And um, there is public support for this. And like 97% of respondents were in favour of it. But interesting enough, there was a group called the Dublin Can Be Heaven. Now I've heard of these like the odd time, but essentially they're a read and I, I, I couldn't figure out how I'd heard of them before. So I had a look, right? So this Dublin Can Be Heaven is a small independent retail group um, that apparently um, represent a couple of, a uh, couple of, I, I'm not sure how many, but um, a few um, retail groups. 
But essentially, they are concerned at the hostility towards drivers that's being fostered by all this pedestrianisation, despite the car parks remaining open and all of that. But everyone is against these cars. But these same, this same group um, seem to be essentially a car lobby or a rich people lobby uh, for, for people from the suburbs. Um, because in 2020, they actually gave vouchers to their customers for parking outside. So to increase the uh, turnover, to increase people to drive into the city. There is articles online, you can check it out, for, from Dublin Can Be Heaven, saying that they were giving vouchers to their, cust- their loyal customers who drive in to uh, visit their shops but essentially yeah it's uh, these wealthy shoppers who are well healed that couldn't possibly walk and need a car and um, so they're against pedestrianization and um, so you can see this uh, thinly veiled car lobby um, in the retail uh, industry which is really interesting I'm sure they also represent Brown Thomas but I didn't actually get that far but I'm sure they had opposition to Cap- the Cape Street um, that, where, they, where they were uh, giving out about that but really interesting conversation there and uh, don't be fooled by the Dublin Can Be Heaven lobby because they are definitely a pro-car lobby. Wow, a pro-car lobby. Uh, and it, yeah, just on the retail side of things, it just makes no sense because it's the cars, people are having so much access to cars that's killing the main streets all across the country because of the building of um, retail outlets on the outskirts of town. So um, it's a bit illogical. But anyway, look, I think we're all finished here. So uh, we're going to wrap up. Um, this has been The Week at Work. I want to thank our guest, Stevie Nolan, and my co-hosts, Connor McCabe and Michelle Byrne, for joining me. Uh, we're part of the Left Block group, so um, you can find out more about us on uh, patreon.com forward slash left block, left block with a C, no K at the end there. And uh, if you do like what you hear, please chip in. Uh, but if you can't chip in, that's fine too. Just share, subscribe, pass it on, let people know that this is happening um, uh, and, and make sure people listen to this this show and others that are affiliated to the Left Block Project. So uh, again, thank you very much and we'll talk to you all again soon.